You are listening to The Interpreter, the podcast of the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Lauren Delaney Miller. In this episode, I'll be sitting down with Nate Greenberg, president of the Eastern Sierra Avalanche Center, to talk about snow safety on the east side. Spring is in the air here in Bishop, but a pie in the mountains. It still feels like winter. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks so much for being here, Nate. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lauren. Well, I'm really curious about your background and how you ended up here in the Eastern Sierra. Sure. I've lived in Eastern Sierra, primarily Mammoth, now Crowley, since 2000. I grew up in Southern California in Orange and spent a fair bit of time up here as a kid, skiing and playing and hiking and climbing and everything like that. Went to college at UC Davis and spent a fair bit of time over here actually in college as well. It was kind of where we went instead of going to Tahoe and you know made the decision consciously while finishing college that I wanted to come over here and, and start a career and ultimately you know, be in a place that I could sort of live, work, and play and, and not really have to be commuting back and forth. So it's been a really fun 20 plus years and uh, yeah, I don't see you leaving anytime soon. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to dreaming of making the East Side their home. So have you been involved in the Avalanche Center since you first moved over here? Yeah, so when I first got here, there wasn't an Avalanche Center. Uh, historically, in the kind of early mid 90s there there was a small center when i first got here in 2000 there was a online web-based service called the cyberspace snow and avalanche center and they had somebody local who was writing occasional avalanche advisories and posting them to this sort of clearinghouse but it wasn't a local avalanche center and there wasn't a lot of capacity there and so um, that was sort of the main resource that we had for, you know, a handful of years or more. And in 2006, um, myself, along with Howie Schwartz and S.P. Parker and Dave Tolsky and Walter Rosenthal got together and, and decided that we should actually try to restart and formally create an avalanche center. And so we did that basically in the 2006-2007 season and have been involved with it ever since. That sounds awesome. And I know that you've also written a guidebook to backcountry skiing, and I'm curious about what that process has been like for you. I know you've been through a couple of versions of that already. Yeah, that was a really fun project as well. And the first edition of that book came out in 2008. And as you said, we're now in the third edition, which was put out three or four years ago now. And, you know, that grew out of a couple of things. I mean, one, there was an old, um, out of date, out of print guidebook for the region at the time that was written by John Moignet and was my Bible when I moved here and even before I moved here, uh, but it was out of print and, you know, it was about 20 years um, out of date at that point. Not that things have changed dramatically, but obviously it wasn't full color and et cetera, et cetera. And so I had initially sort of tested the waters to see if there was interest in a book and put out some maps essentially, and they were very well received and people really were interested in getting more information. And so, um, you know, about 2007 or so, Dan Mingori, an old friend of mine who lived on the East Side for a long, long time and recently moved away, um, and I got together and decided to write the first edition of this book. And, you know, really the goal for us was to kind of 
modernize the book and to sort of really showcase the beauty of the range and, you know, really have some nice photography, updated information, but we also wanted really good firsthand information. And so it became a Bible for me in terms of my own tick list. And over the last couple of editions, you know, as I've skied more in the range and you know, various things like that, it, it just keeps growing in sort of size and scope. And so what does your role with the Avalanche Center look like now? So I serve as president of the board. We have a nine-member board of directors that oversees and manages the nonprofit. All of the board members are volunteer, and many of us have been on the board since the beginning. Howie Schwartz and I both have been on the board since the beginning, and several other members, you know, since you know the early 2000s as well. And you know, so I think the board's role as a whole is to try to Number one, ensure vitality of the center, you know, fundraise, deal with sort of the organizational structure pieces, talk about and deal with strategy around, you know, where we should be kind of headed and and how we should operate and, you know, how to engage the community effectively and things like that. But obviously the day-to-day operations and a lot of the product that is developed is put out by our staff. And so we have three full-time avalanche forecasters that have been with us for several years now. And um, their role is to basically collect data in the field and ultimately write the uh, advisory, which is the primary product that we put out. And then this year, we actually added two new staff people on a part-time basis to help us with grants and administrative work. And then another one to help oversee a lot of education and outreach work. And so the board's role is um, is evolving. I think the center is growing, and you know where a lot of us on the board used to be very very hands on and owning a lot of actual work product that needed to be dealt with. Now that we're growing some staff capacity and things like that, we're able to sort of step back a little bit and look at sort of organizational health and strategy and serve more at a board role. So that's kind of where I sit today. Awesome. And so we're recording this in late March, and it makes me curious how things looked this winter and how was our snowpack looking compared to years past? And I'm curious about your general overview of how this season's been so far. Well, it's been a tough season. I think uh, the simple, simple answer is, you know, it's, it's a record-breaking season on the bad end of the scale as opposed to the good end of the scale. Um, you know, it was a relatively slow start and relatively dry November and December with only a few storms. We had a, you know, a big storm in January that was record breaking on the kind of other end of the continuum, really just a small trickle of storms kind of here and there throughout. And I think that, you know, the, the current state of the snowpack is fairly dismal. I mean, not to be really pessimistic about it, but I think not only the, the lack of snow, but sort of the long periods of sunny, dry, warm that existed, unseasonably warm that existed between the snow, you know, just eroded a lot of the snow that did exist on sunny aspects. And, you know, any new snow that fell generally was falling on bare ground in a lot of places. And so we're, uh, it's going to be an interesting summer. It's going to be a tough water year. And I think, you know, people have been skiing and making the most of it. But it certainly has been a not a great season to be a skier, better season to be a climber or a runner or something else. And does that fall in line with a trend? 
that you've been seeing recently? Or does this year feel like it stands out compared to the last couple of years? I mean, you know, I'm not a climatologist. And so, and frankly, I can't remember back more than a handful of years anyway, in, in terms of all the details. But, you know, I think that what we do know and and see with regard to climate change is these extremes that start to happen. It's not necessarily that it's always getting warmer or, you know, it's always going to be drier, but that the extremes of both the seasonably and unseasonably temperature and precipitation amounts are drifting, you know, far and wide away from what was maybe once kind of more normal. And, you know, I think that this year is actually a very good indication of that where, you know, we just did not see much snow early on. I mean, in in January, you know, we were wearing flip-flops in, in Crowley Lake. And, uh, you know, and then we had a huge storm that was, you know, record-breaking, the snow 10 feet in, you know, basically 48 hours. And so while that's not unheard of, it's, you know, certainly to be the only storm of the season and of something of that character is, I don't know, it is a bit unique. And so, you know, we certainly have seen drought years and multiple drought years in a row in the past couple of decades. And we've seen wet years and multiple wet years in a row. And there's always a bit of a fluctuation, but this is definitely on the drier end of the continuum. And it is it is a bit of a unique year in that capacity, I think. Right. And so at the same time, though, it seems like a lot of people have been talking about big changes in recreation and who's accessing the backcountry and some of that maybe being influenced by COVID and being ski resorts being more limited and things like that. Have you noticed changes in recreation as well? Yeah, I, there's no doubt. I mean, I think that we were seeing an increased trend in backcountry use even prior to COVID. Two years ago, there was an uptick. Avalanche courses were selling out and there were no available slots during the season. And, you know, there was clearly demand. It was one of the largest, if not the only segments of growth in the industry and in ski industry as a whole. And so that trend was there. And then I think the effects of COVID just amplified it, you know, as certainly as Mammoth shut down, as other ski areas throughout the West shut down and reacted, it forced people immediately into the backcountry. Um, and we saw really incredible numbers of users, like a dramatic growth in some of the, the town edge types of um, common areas like the Sherwins and Punta Bardini and the Crest, you know, where you would may maybe see 20 people heading out on any given weekend day. You're now seeing 100 or 200 people going out on any, any given weekend day. So it was clear that that was happening. And honestly, I think the uncertainty of what was going to happen with the ski season this year, you know, and operations at the, at the ski areas, et cetera, I think just forced people even more along that continuum to be less inclined to buy passes and more inclined to invest in, in touring gear. And so, yeah, there's no doubt that it has dramatically increased the numbers and the, the interest in backcountry. So if you are a skier or a snowboarder who's traditionally been a resort user, but you're interested in getting into the backcountry, where do you recommend they start? Well, you know, the first place is to get educated. I mean, there, there's there's really no doubt in my mind that it is, it, it's a very harsh in learning environment. And, um, you know, I had an accident this year that I think is 
indicative of just how harsh and difficult of an environment it is, despite having a lot of knowledge and experience. And so while we do live in a relatively safe snow climate and generally don't see the, the widespread avalanche activity that some of the Intermountain West sees, it is not something to be tinkered with in this season especially. Um, and so the, the number one recommendation that I have is that you know people have spent thousand dollars or more on a ski setup or a splitboard setup. It's worth the $400 to go take an avalanche course. And then honestly, I think beyond taking the avalanche course, it's worth paying to go and get out with a guide for a day or two days after you've taken that course with some friends. You can't replace experience and mentorship. I mean, there's obviously no end of literature and reading and opportunities to learn things online. And, you know, certainly there's all, all of those resources are extremely valid and valuable, but really immersing yourself in and having a, a mentor to help you through is a really important thing. And that's something, honestly, that should never change or end. Um, you know, Jeremy Jones famously says avalanche education is a, is a class you never graduate from. And I think that, um, you know, the more experience you have, you know, in some ways, the higher risk you end up sort of exposing yourself to. And I think a constant immersion in that and a commitment to development and, and growth is really, really important because it is, you know, a very harsh environment. So I think I would certainly first start by getting educated. And so I think that when people think of the Avalanche Center's work, they likely think primarily of skiers and snowboarders. But it seems like there's also an uptick in people who are trying to get out hiking, snowshoeing, snowmobiling on the east side in the winter. And so what are some of the things that those folks might be thinking about? You know, they're not going to exactly the same terrain that skiers and snowboarders are, but they're certainly potentially getting themselves into terrain where avalanches are of concern. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I would say that snow machiners are probably um, more similar to uh, skiers and snowboarders than are, you know, dog walkers and, and snowshoers and hikers or, or even climbers. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, snow machines um, obviously have tremendous range and the ability to access a lot of terrain very quickly and be part of terrain um, features very, very quickly. And um, there is a growing um, amount of interest and opportunity for education in that user group, um, not because they're complacent or because they're not interested or anything like that, but just that the opportunities were not as widespread or pervasive as they were for skiers and snowboarders for a long, long time. And now there are some really good courses. Um, the Sierra Avalanche Center up in Tahoe offers some free uh, level one snowmobile courses. And I think the Avalanche Center here, Eastern Sierra Avalanche Center, is looking to sort of follow suit in the next year or so with something similar down here. And so, you know, they, I say, I don't put them in their own category, but, you know, clearly they are, they are engaging with Avalanche Train in a much more active way like skiers or snowboarders would. You know, climbers, we don't see a tremendous amount of that up in the portion of the range that we're in and sort of the the mammoth area but as you start getting south to like bishop independence lone pine you know where the the higher peaks are the people are interested in making winter ascents of 
classic routes and things like that, those people are directly engaging with avalanche terrain as well, but are doing so in a little bit of a different way. And we do see some issues, you know, some um, exposure to to that user group, although it is it tends to be a little less prominent, I think, just because the numbers are a little bit lower. But all of those folks, you know, those kind of four dominant user groups, I think can all sort of relate to the Avalanche advisory and the products that we put out almost equivalently. I mean, the mechanism of travel is a little bit different, but the engagement level is all very much the same. And so they're all basically actively engaging in avalanche terrain. But I think when you start talking about snowshoers and sledders and, you know, folks that are um, maybe just out Nordic skiing on touring skis at the base of the Sherwins and things like that, you know, a lot of them don't think about the fact that they're going into avalanche terrain sometimes because they're not skiing on anything that's not flat or, you know, walking up anything that's, you know, steeper than 15 or 20 degrees. And in general, those are all very safe activities, even when avalanche danger is extreme. The biggest thing that I think a lot of people overlook or don't consider, and luckily we don't have a lot of this terrain in our immediate area, but the Sherwins are a good example where you could go walking out in the Snow Creek Meadow and be beneath a very, very large slide path that's above you. And on, a, on an extreme avalanche danger day, um, you know, it doesn't take a human to trigger an avalanche that you could be subject to, even though you're not actually, you know, on that slope. And so kind of being cognizant of your overhead exposure, as we call it in, in the avalanche world, and some of the objective hazards that are out there is extremely, extremely important. You know, and then the other thing, which is not directly related to avalanches, but it's just deep snow issues as a whole. And we've seen, unfortunately, a lot of deep snow immersion fatalities this year because, you know, snow was falling on bare ground. It didn't have time to settle. People fall into tree wells. And those don't necessarily have to always be skiers or snowboarders or snowmobilers. They can be hikers and and folks like that as well. And so I guess the number one thing is to just be cognizant of your surroundings. You know, if you're seeing high or extreme avalanche danger, which will get broadcast on the National Weather Service and on radio and things like that, you know, make sure you're going someplace smart and safe, staying on trails and, you know, just being thoughtful about it. Right. And so you said that the primary product that the Avalanche Center puts out is that daily report. But say I look up the report, it's green. It says that the avalanche danger is pretty low. What does that mean for me now? What other things should I still be thinking about even in days when avalanche danger is fairly low? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and I think one of the things that is taught in avalanche courses today is really around planning and preparedness for the day itself. You know, that starts with actually having a good solid group and, you know, at least one other team member. And it kind of goes forward from that point to developing a plan for the day that everybody can agree to and choosing terrain that fits both your and your partner's skill level as well as is I guess, cognizant of the avalanche hazard and other hazards that exist. And then committing to that plan while also ensuring that you're not locked into it and that you're able to react and adjust to conditions that change as you're out there. Um, You could have a low avalanche hazard day 
but then there could be winds that come up in the middle of the day and start transporting snow and all of a sudden you find yourself in moderate or considerable hazard without the forecast ever even changing that happens around here a lot and so being nimble and being able to see what's happening and react to the environment around you and you know maybe changes in how your group is feeling and those types of things are all really important in in sort of having a successful day and then you know one thing that i don't think we talk enough about but it really is sort of debriefing period at the end of the day of like hey you know that was a great day that was super fun um did everything go well you know and it doesn't have to be really formal but you know having a little bit of a rundown of like hey i thought we worked together really well as a team and i'm i'm really glad you brought this up when you felt this way or you saw that thing you know we're as i said we're always learning and i think we have to continually rely on ourselves and one another to not just kind of react to a color on a avalanche advisory and then expect or accept that as setting a, a standard of practice for us for that day Right. And it seems like that debrief probably often happens when things don't go quite as planned, but should probably be ingrained when things do go pretty well and you have a great day also, because decisions were also made those days that lead up to a really nice day out in the mountains. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I think one of the things that is, you know, it's discussed, but I think it's not underscored enough is that the, the learning environment for avalanche education is, as I said, it's harsh. You know, it's known as a wicked problem. It's a wicked learning environment, meaning that you can get it right or close to right a hundred times or a thousand times. And it doesn't take much, you know, to get it wrong or just kind of wrong and have things go south really, really quick. And so I think it's important. It's easier to change habits and patterns when you get negative feedback. It's hard to continue to develop or tweak patterns when all you ever get is no feedback or maybe even positive feedback. And so I think being skeptical, uh, inviting, you know, dissension that's healthy and conversation that is, you know, focused around like, what did we do well and what could we have done better? You know, what did we do wrong? You know, every day, even when you, when you come home and everything seemed like a great day is it's just part of that process of being better and being more responsible and and growing and developing experience and communication skills. Right. It seems like whether it's winter or summer, really for all backcountry users, it's an important skill to be able to discern between days when you're lucky and days when you're smart. Yeah. And man, it's impossible. You know, it's like, I think, you know, you, you probably know when you got away with it, but there's a lot of days you get away with it and you never know. And I think that that's um, that's the trick, you know, and I think that that's the thing that we're all some of us are are better at that than others. And, um, you know, obviously that was that was something that ultimately caught up with me this year. And I think it's like really reiterated the need for investment in sort of habits and, and patterns and conversation and decision making and trying to make things routine so that you know, you don't become complacent in the routines, but that you're, you're really encouraging good, smart decision-making and being thoughtful as you're sort of moving in the mountains. Right. And so, like we said earlier, it's late March now, 
And while it seems like warmer days down here in Bishop, here at the ECA headquarters, uh, it's really just about getting to be prime time for backcountry skiing and snowboarding. And why is that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, March, it, it's interesting um, because, you know, obviously we, we see the conversion to spring and the days get longer and it does get warmer. And heck, you probably could wear flip-flops and mammoth on some days. But we also see, you know, really big snowfalls in March, for one thing. And, um, you know, March quite often in the Eastern Sierra feels more like winter than January does. At least, you know, in the last 15 or so years, that's proven to be true. And we've had, you know, very, very significant record marches where it doesn't stop snowing at all. And so it kind of depends on how much snow is on the ground and what the snowpack is doing and certainly what the weather's doing. But all of that being said, you know, as days get longer and the time change supports, you know, getting up early and uh, everything around that. The other big one that happens in a few weeks as fishing opener occurs is a lot of roads into the mountains, the east-west roads that go up to the lakes and trailheads get plowed. You know, we call it skiing opener because it's actually probably more beneficial to us as skiers than it is to the folks who are out fishing in frozen lakes. But basically, you know, terrain starts to open up because of things like I just described. And then also, you know, as the sun gets higher in the sky and the storms start to taper off and they're not as frequent, generally start to see the snowpack stabilize. And as we get into the middle part of April, we do transition more toward fairly consistent and routine spring-like conditions where, you know, even if it does snow, it'll generally be sunny very shortly thereafter that snow will settle, you know, you'll have cold nights. And so snowpack will freeze and harden and generally gain strength. And then as, you know, the sun comes out the next day, it'll warm the snowpack. And ultimately that creates a snow condition called corn skiing, which um, a lot of corn snow and corn skiing, a lot of people have heard about the Eastern Sierra is famous for because we do have those cold nights and and nice sunny days. And so um, the combination of all those things create for uh, a lot of opportunity to get out and explore generally in pretty safe conditions and in, in conditions that are more predictable. And, um, you know, we're we're headed that direction now. I mean, the Avalanche Center's last day of operation for the season is April 15th, which is fairly standard across um, North America. And, um, you know, part of that is because we do generally get into those those cycles and the avalanche problems become um, rapid warming or a lack of freezing at night, not necessarily an errant um, storm, which can still happen. But um, yeah, spring skiing around here is pretty idyllic. You can put your skis on early, maybe even before the sun rises, be up on top of a peak for the sunrise, ski down to your car, take your boots off, put your flip flops on and, you know, go for a dog walk or go bouldering or go sit in a hot spring. And Not many places like that in the world. No, not at all. It seems pretty special. And so how can backcountry travelers get information about current conditions and report things that they're seeing? Yeah, great question. Um, and both of those are really good good questions. So um, the Eastern Sierra Avalanche Center website is the, the primary uh, place for both of those things to happen. And that's at um, www.es, like Eastern Sierra Avalanche.org. Um, on the website, you know, on the homepage front and center is the avalanche advisory for the day. Those are issued every day by 7 a.m. 
and uh, you can drill down into that and kind of read through um, the high level all the way down to the super detailed parts of snowpack and weather and avalanche problems and the like. And then behind that and how that is being developed by the forecast team every day is um, basically data that's being gathered from the field. And some of that is gathered by um, our forecast team, you know, who are professionals and are out there gathering um, data to help them shape their understanding of what's happening in the snowpack. Uh, but it's a huge range. I mean, we forecast generally between Virginia Lakes and Bishop. And, you know, over that 120 some odd miles, you know, there's a bunch of drainages, as everybody knows, and every single one of those offers slightly different set of conditions. And so we rely really heavily on observations being submitted by the public who are out there, too. And you don't have to be a snow professional. You don't have to have, have taken a level one avalanche course or anything like that. Just having information about, hey, I was out skiing in such and such drainage and um, I felt a big wump or like I saw a natural avalanche that looked like it had occurred two days ago or hey we triggered an avalanche and everybody was fine but like those pieces of data are extremely valuable because we can't have people and eyes everywhere and so all of that happens at that the Eastern Sierra Avalanche Center's website you can both contribute information as well as see that information that has been contributed by others. Awesome. And if people listening want to support the Avalanche Center and get more involved, can they do that on the website as well? Absolutely. Um, and thanks for asking. I mean, the the center, you know, we're now in our 15th year, I guess. Um, we continue to grow. I would say that this year we're more successful and we've taken on and um, are sort of focused on even more than we were last year than the year before that. Um, and all of that is based on the support from the community. We are 100% community supported and, and based. Um, we actually operate while we're a nonprofit organization. Um, and we do have a memorandum of understanding with the U.S. Forest Service and the Inyo National Forest. Um, we are not a U.S. Forest Service avalanche center. And traditionally in the U.S., um, there is a U.S. Forest Service avalanche center that has a nonprofit support group behind it to help raise money. In our case, um, you know, we are the Avalanche Center. And I always like to say that, you know, this is your Avalanche Center because um, the community uh, is the one who contributes funds directly in support of our operations. And that happens through just online contributions. And there's links on our site to go do that. Um, we have a large fundraiser at the beginning of every season in December. Um, and, you know, that'll bring in anywhere between, you know, fifteen dollars and $30,000. This year was one of our most successful fundraisers ever. Um, we do have a tremendous amount of industry support from local companies like Ridge Marino and, um, you know, some, some industry um, uh, uh, commercial entities, you know, like Patagonia and Jones Snowboards and other folks that, that provide financial support, as well as a number of community foundations. Um, we get money from the town of Mammoth Lakes through um, their uh, their Mammoth Trails and Measure You Measure R programs. Um, you know, we have funding through local foundations and all of that goes to, you know, basically our bottom line. Another big one for us this year um, that I want to recognize is that we 
are working a little more in partnership with uh, state OHV in the green sticker program. And um, we're, we've, we're receiving a grant to help support our operations from them, which is helping us grow our capacity. Um, but I'll say that, you know, uh, basically this year, I mean, we raised nearly $100,000 just through community support without even actually having that OHV grant. And that's tremendous. I mean, it's really indicative of the level of interest and support from the community. And so um, every every dollar amount helps, you know, whether you want to come and give 20 bucks or, or buy a T-shirt or, you know, actually become more of a sustaining member and partner. Um, that's all appreciated and it can be done all through our website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nate. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Uh, no, I just really appreciate the opportunity and um, the interest in the Avalanche Center. I mean, I think, as we said, um, you know, backcountry skiing is continuing to grow. And um, we as an organization uh, want to be part of the community and support of that and help people get the information they need and, you know, make good decisions while being out there. And so um, we love to hear from folks. Uh, there's a um, user survey out right now. And I don't know, by the time this podcast is out, that may or may not still be up, but um, please, you know, please reach out to us. There's contact information on the site. If you want to become more involved or get more information, um, you know, feel free to send us a message and uh, we, we'd love to work with you. And we look forward to seeing folks out there in the backcountry. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. A huge thanks to Nate Greenberg and the Eastern Sierra Avalanche Center for being here today. You can read more about Nate's work at esavalanche.org. This podcast is a production of the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association, partnering with the Forest Service to protect the Sierra Nevada for over 50 years. To learn more about our organization and to support programs like this podcast through annual memberships, visit sierraforever.org. Until next time, I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. Thank you.